HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Do you know that you taste with your nose and fat is a flavor? Get ready for the science of cooking with the Flavor Matrix. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. Today, they are tuning in to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is the flavor matrix. It sounds very exciting. It is not a movie with Keanu Reeves. But it is a book by James Brissione, who is with us today in studio to talk about his recently published tome. James, thank you for coming out. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. We are here in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the Heritage Radio Network studios, which are two repurposed shipping containers. It's really true. We can look onto the pizza restaurant. It's amazing and a little wacky, but a lot of fun. And we're going to start off the show today, like we always do, going around the shipping container, talking about apps, apps we love, new ones we've discovered, old favorites that have been living on our home screen for 10 years. And today, we will start off with a voice we haven't heard in a little bit because he's been traveling and rambling. Dave Tadashore, our engineer and studio manager, who's just back from Charleston. Yes, where Heritage Radio Network set up a studio to do some live broadcasting from the Wine and Food Festival. It was a whirlwind weekend in Charleston. How was it? It was great. I think this year we had a better sense of how things were going to go. We did it last year also, and um, I think we were just better prepared this year. We were were a lot more efficient. We 
had all the episodes cranked out and edited and, and posted before we even left town. So, yeah, very happy about that. And where can people find this? This is one of our special Heritage Radio Network on the Road series where we go on the road and record and interview amazing things. Right. So if you go to heritageradionetwork.org and then if you look at the list of shows, it's under special shows. It's called Heritage Radio Network on Tour. Um, it's got a like an interstate highway sign in the logo so you can't miss it. How appropriate. Yep. Did you get a chance to eat while although you were we, in Charleston? Although we flew there, so. <laughs> Don't tell people. <laughs> I mean, the tour bus is parked out back. The, it's a road trip, Dave. Yeah. Um, Did you get a chance to eat? I love Charleston. It's one of my very favorite food cities. No, I didn't, didn't eat at all, all weekend, actually. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You're one more festival away from your ideal weight. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that? Where was the rim shot button? <laughs> Uh, no, we ate, we ate a lot of great food, of course. Um, we ate at Fig one night. We had breakfast at Hominy Grill. Oh, I love Hominy Grill. We went to uh, Jiao Bao, which is this great Asian place. Um, I've not had Asian food in Charleston. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I'll bet. Um, Everything is yeah. so good down there. I really like that town and like that food. It has a very nice vibe also. You should Do come next year. I should. Host a show or two or three. Excellent. I will put that on my calendar. We can talk about that. Okay. Do you have an app for us? Um, yeah, this is... We're getting back on the Dave Tat privacy train. Yep. Uh, Dave know, likes privacy and organization. My favorite place to be. Security. Um, yeah. Security from the man. Behind the veil. Yep. Uh, this is just... It's a Google app, Google Authenticator, which is used in two-factor authentication. So um, any site that... Well, not any site, I guess, but... Many many sites that offer two-factor authentication give you a choice of how you want to receive your second factor, um, whether it's via text or email or via app. And this is an app that it'll just give you a push notification when you're logging in. And um, so it's a lot easier than having to go into your text, your email, and you know click on something. This way it just comes right up on your, on your home screen of your phone, and, and then you can log in. Do you feel more secure? Not really, but it's something to do. <laughs> can't hurt, right? Yeah, I guess not. Because Google already has all They already have data. everything, yeah. So yeah what else can I hurt. give them? Right. James, do you have an app that you like right now or the one you use all the time? I do, actually. So I've, I've been traveling a lot recently, too, you know, with the book coming out now and we're just getting around with lots of things. Uh, and it's not a new one, but uh, the Chef's Feed app. Oh, that's great. Do you know that one? We've had it mentioned really, really early on, but not in a while. It's just a fantastic app because I'm not a person who plans ever anything. It's like I show up in a city. I'm like, cool, where am I going to go eat tonight? And with the, with the Chef's Feed app, you log in and you pull up the map and you can see you know, where within the, you know, it shows you on the map within the area that you're standing where other chefs like to go eat and you know lots a lot of like the local chefs and chefs from that town and they you know they log in and like mark down and like oh you got to go get the pizza at this place and you got to try the ribs here um so it's fun so you can kind of scroll through see what some of the best dishes are and, and plan out you know plan out your day of eating i just ate my way through denver on the chef's feed app and do you also contribute content i do so I do. you add your two cents or recommendations or endorsement yes yeah. So whenever whenever I eat something great, I'm, I try to get in. I try to remember to get in there and be like, oh, you got to come here and eat, eat this. I was updating a few things in Denver, I think, when I was there a lot, just just a couple of weeks ago. What was one of your favorites? 
So I was on a pizza tour in Denver. Okay, and actually. why not? Yeah, well, I'm getting ready to go open a pizza restaurant down in Florida. Okay. Uh, well, pizza, Italian in general, but pizza, handmade pastas, and a lot of beautiful Gulf seafood. So um, we were hitting up all of, of a lot of the pizza spots in Denver. And is there a specific type of pizza that's native to Denver? Uh, no, it was a lot of, is a lot of beautiful, you know, really kind of just like here, the Roberta's just, you know, wood burning Neapolitan style, wood burning oven, you know, beautiful crust. And actually the best one I had also came out of a shipping container. What do you know? Maybe that, maybe that's a part of the, the secret sauce, the shipping container. It could be. You know, I had a conversation years ago with, um, who was it? Oh, you know, I think it was actually Joel Robuchon on the occasion of opening one of the restaurants in New York and we were talking about the bread. They always have amazing amazing bread at his restaurants. And we were talking about uh, how when you have a boulangerie or pastry that's been there for years and years and years and you make the bread in the same room, that the actual environment of the room contributes to the end result of the product because bread is made from yeast, it rises, it's a living food, and you have some of those things floating around in the air and on the walls and all of that. So you could have the exact same recipe for something like bread produced in a different kitchen to a different result because you would be missing the natural elements from the environment. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. That stuff is around us all the time and, and you never realize it. And, you know, I've actually been kind of, you know, kind of toying with that idea if we're going to, if we're going to get down there to Florida and try to start a natural ferment, um, you know, and kind of keep, keep a mother going at all times. Well, and, and Maybe let that... you need a shipping container. Maybe it's something about the recycled shipping containers and the metal. Maybe they have like salt <laughs> in them from, you know, being outside on the ocean forever. Yeah. Going need... back and forth transatlantic. I mean, there may, who knows? There Who could, knows? There could be something there. Could be. <laughs> well, my app today is an oldie but a goodie, but it is to announce some exciting news. We now have all of the Heritage Radio Network shows on Spotify, which is exciting. We've been on iTunes and Stitcher Radio for a long time, and we are now on Spotify, which means it's just one more easy way to download your favorite shows and take them with you. So get the Spotify app, get Tech Bytes, get all Heritage Radio Network shows lineup. We have about 35 live shows a week, something for everyone. So check it out, Spotify. We're excited to be here. Very cool. Yeah. So we have James here today. As I mentioned at the top of the show, he recently published a book called The Flavor Matrix. Actually, this week, I think today might actually be the official pub date. Tuesday was. Tuesday was. Two, Two days removed. And it's called The Flavor Matrix. It's a very interesting, non-traditional cookbook. And I'm going to say non-traditional for a couple of reasons. And the first thing that struck me when I looked through the book is that it's not organized in the traditional dish category way. Most cookbooks you pick up, they have appetizers, salads, breakfast dishes, desserts, um, meat courses, poultry. Um, You certainly have recipes for all of those things in the book. But this book is organized by ingredients and flavor profiles because the construct of the book is something very different. Um, The construct of the book is actually the science of cooking. I don't think... I think cooking is such an interesting thing on the day-to-day. Most people don't think about it as being chemistry. But cooking at its heart actually is 
very much science and chemistry. It's the transformation, transformation of molecule, molecules when they're combined with other molecules with or without heat. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I mean, it, and, you know, for me and kind of putting this book together and, and creating it, uh, you know, I'd always, I've always been a little science minded, um, though I was not good in chemistry in high school or college. You were not good in chemistry, no. but you are the director of research and a chef instructor at the Institute for Culinary Education. Yeah. Well, you know, cause it, it wasn't interesting to me back then. And then in fact, I remember, uh, I remember this very well, I think freshman year of college, um, you know, I was, I'd already been working in restaurants and I was really in, into cooking and um, we were working through something, and, and I remembered that you know we learned that the boiling point of acetic acid that it was higher than water, and I was like, oh, well, that's probably part of the reason we added to poaching water for eggs because it allows the water to get hotter without without bubbling quite yet, and that was the only thing that I remember from my first year of chemistry was that acetic acid has a higher boiling because I could immediately relate it to food and just something that I was actually interested in rather than just uh, you know a bunch of a bunch of lines and, and circles um, on a piece of paper um, you know once, once I saw that application I, it realized it, it got exciting to me and interesting so at what point did you really understand that cooking is science and sort of bring the two together you know, it's it's a fascinating snapshot to think of young James in college, <laughs> totally not into chemistry, but working in a restaurant and into food. It's almost it's yeah. almost a Chinese box scenario where one, the right hand isn't paying attention to what the left hand. No, doing. no, it wasn't. And I think you know that you know I'm I'm getting kind of old now, but you know this whole kind of idea that I think you know really. You know, st- not necessarily started, but was really kind of brought to the forefront with the modernist cuisine guys, where you know we really started to say, well, wait a second, let's let's turn to science and, and understand exactly what's going on here, so that we can all be better at it. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do with the flavor matrix: is to really understand, you know, not the transformations that happen during cooking, but but the flavor that's present in our ingredients and sort of how it's constructed, where it comes from, how we experience it. And, you know, when you start to understand those things, you can be, you can be a better cook. You can be a more creative cook. So there, the, this book is, it's a beautiful hardcover book. It has a lot, a lot of information in it. And we're not going to be able to come close to walking through everything that's in the book. Um, so we're going to maybe try and do an overview so people can understand what's in the book. But then, you know, I encourage you to try and find and look at a copy yourself the introduction to the book sort of explains all of these um, scientific premises. It also explains your inspiration for writing the book. And I think if someone's really interested in the science of flavor that you're talking about, you could read the introduction, and it's sort of like a mini thesis on that in many ways. Yeah, exactly. So explain to us first off, which I think would be blowing people's minds that we taste with our nose and not with our tongue and then explain to me why fat is a flavor which is going to make probably some people very concerned yeah (laughs) that Um, fat's a flavor (laughs) it's a great flavor 
Um, I like I like the fav- flavor fat. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So you know when we take a bite of food, uh, two things happen. First of all, your your tongue kind of kicks in and starts sensing certain molecules in the food. But it's you know those your tongue really can only report to the brain on uh, a very few things, and it's and it's those things that we know you know that we that we've kind of always known: sugar, you know, sweet, salty, sour, bitter. Uh, and umami; those are kind of the five classic and tastes. Umami is a recent uh, umami, classification. Well, it is and isn't in like the like, U.S. and sort of quote Western right. cooking. Like we've recently, it was the big four forever, for a long right? time. Which is you know what we learned, and we learned about how they were. You, know, you learned that they're you see the little grid lined the up grid, in these neat yeah. little rows around the center, the sides of your tongue, which is which is not true either because there are sensors for uh, all of the taste all over your tongue. Um, they can may, some of them are a little bit more concentrated in certain spots, but it's not like the tip of your tongue is the only place you can taste salt. You taste salt everywhere. You can taste salt on your cheek. Um, so we recently got umami. We recently got umami, even though it's over a hundred years old. How would you describe umami? <laughs> uh, savoriness, I think. Savory, um, uh, is, you know, meaty? Like meaty. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amino acid that's being sensed by the tongue. Um, so it's that savoriness, that meatiness, even though, you know, some of the best sources from umami are, are non-meat sources. It's, it's Parmesan cheese and tomato and mushroom. Yeah. Um, but now there's, there's some new kind of emerging science that says that, um, you know, our tongues can sense fat as well, that there's actual receptors that are signaling back to the brain when, uh, fatty acids are detected. Um, so we think about fat more I think texturally, right? As, a, as a feel, mouth you feel. can feel the fat in your mouth. You can feel the viscosity of an olive oil. You can feel the creaminess of a coconut oil. You can feel that nice buttery slick sometimes yeah. um, in ice creams. Um, but I guess in this scenario, when we're talking about food as science, everything is molecules. And if the tongue is recognizing a molecule it recognizes a fat molecule in the exact same way it would recognize a salt or a sugar. Exactly. Because it's all molecules. Right. That's it. It's all, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all chemicals. Exactly. Right? As Nathan Mirold likes to say. Yes. Um, all of it. You know, it, it's, it's all chemicals. And we can, we can say some are good and, you know, we can think about bad ones. But, um, yeah, that's really, that's really what it is. So we're really kind of just got these six things. And then... And so then, the, the, the fat... Being discovered is the six not being discovered. But right. in, in essence, is it science becoming more refined in terms of identifying what the tongue is capable of identifying on a molecular level? Is that where the breakthrough comes in? Somebody's looking at it at a finer and finer level of detail? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly where it is. So we're just kind of, and, and I think there's plenty more to be discovered on the tongue. I think we may find more amino acids that are identified. I think there's 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 more there, but just, you know, our, our ability to, to study these things, uh, you know, is getting our better. Our interest level. Yeah, and our interest level, our, our, you know, our desire to learn these things, uh, you know, is, is getting much, much higher. And I think, you know, this conversation now that is happening between chefs and scientists, uh, you know, which is a, a big part of, of, you know, what the flavor metrics is all about is, is a really wonderful thing. Um, but it, so it stands, you know, where we're at, we've got these six things, um, that the tongue is reporting, but it's, it's just those six things, right? Everything else that we perceive when we, when we take a bite of food is coming through the nose. It's, it's these other molecules, these other chemicals the that airborne volatile the aroma vom- molecules, right? That, so, and, you know, and we know those and we're, we're so aware of those, 
Uh, you know, when you when you walk into a place that's ba- baking that fresh fresh bread, Roberta's. Yes, you can walk into Roberta's. You can smell the wood burning oven. You can smell the fire, the heat, the char, the, yeah. the delicious crust, the cheesy tomato. So you're starting to taste that pizza the second you walk in the door, and it only becomes more intense as the food moves closer to your face. And then, you know, when you take a bite and you start chewing it, and you're starting, you're releasing now thousands upon thousands of these, you know, molecules, and then they're making their way up into your nose, and that's when you're, you know, that's when your brain is really kind of informing you of the exact flavors, and your tongue is saying, "Ooh, the tomato's acidic. Oh, and the cheese is rich and fatty and a little bit salty," and uh, you know, and your jaw is going, "Oh, this is chewy and a little crispy." And so it's you know, it's all of those senses working together that really kind of form our perception of taste, uh, of flavor. But if you couldn't smell, it probably wouldn't taste great, which is why airline food tastes like crap. Exactly, because you really can't smell anything with all the canned air and no. that air pressure it's all it's all it's it's massively depressed when you're when you're in an airplane and when you're uh you know in in that pressurized tube yeah it, it changes it dramatically and for you know people who are listening if, if you're or even when you have a cold sometimes yeah. it's eat it's hard to eat when you have a cold and nothing tastes good and that's primarily because your nose is stuffed up and because you're not smelling anything. Those pathways for flavor are blocked. And like, you know, I, I love when I'm you know talking to people, if they have a cup of coffee in their hand, pinch your nose closed and take a sip of coffee. And you're not really going, you're going to taste hot water. You're not, you know, there's over 800 different volatile compounds in a cup of coffee that create the flavor of that coffee. And when you cut off the pathway for them to, to be perceived, it's all gone. So where does 800 fit on the spectrum of compound? Pretty high. That's, it's, it's one of the most complex. What's typically in- the range? Uh, you know, most are going to be two to 300 different compounds. So what um, would be in the two to 300 category? Vanilla, actually. You That's think about that as a deep complex. It was surprising to me, too. We think of it, we think of vanilla <clears throat> as being so aromatic and... Super complex, right? Yeah. But, uh, but no, because it, it's, uh, you know, it is, but they're all sort of, they're all pretty tightly packed, uh, you know, I guess, in, in, in specific categories. So coffee about 800, vanilla around two or three. A and leaf then- of lettuce, 20. Leaf of lettuce 20. Yeah. There it is. Flavorless. Why? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I mean, it's just... Do things like arugula and Swiss chard and other leafy greens that we think of as being, um, that, I mean, that have the same sort of uh, structural profile in terms of being leaf and green do, are they, they have also more. low they have more they're they're low but they have they have more as you know like we're like green leaf lettuce you know Your iceberg classic lettuce, iceberg right which is basically just like a structure in water right you know sort of it's, like it's, eating ice yes okay uh you know that's really all you're getting but then you know in, in sort of that middle ground you have you know Apples and strawberries, there are four to 500 different compounds that, that create mm. the flavor of an apple or a strawberry. Interesting. Fascinating. Stay with us to hear more about the flavor matrix. We are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We love our sponsors at Heritage Radio Network because we are a 501c3 nonprofit. We subsist entirely on the generosity of our members, underwriters, and grants to keep the lights on and the mics hot. Stay with us after we hear from who the amazing company supporting us today is.
Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. Today, that innovator is James Brissione, who is director of research and chef instructor at the Institute of Culinary Education. You also may have seen him on the Food Network on Chopped. He is half of the couple's kitchen. He co-authored The Flavor Matrix with Brooke Parkhurst, who's the other half of the couple's kitchen. If you want to find out more about James and Brooke and this book, along with all their other projects, you can visit them at thecoupleskitchen.com. Follow James on Twitter and Instagram at James. Brissione, that's B-R-I-S-C-I-O-N-E. On Twitter, you can find them at underscore couples kitchen and on Instagram at the couples underscore kitchen. The book just came out this week. It is available for about $30 from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is zooming up the charts on Amazon, so you can definitely find it there. And it's also nice because at Amazon they have that sort of look inside the book thing, which we love. But I so encourage you to go to your local cookbook shop and your local bookstore to walk in and grab a copy um, and support our local libraries and, and booksellers. So this is a great, really food tech book. It is about the science of cooking. And sometimes we forget that cooking is a science. And the impetus for this book came from... Uh, James had the opportunity to work with IBM on their Chef Watson project. Um, If you're interested in IBM Chef Watson, that was one of our early, early shows back in 2015, episode number 15. The IBM Chef Watson project was fascinating. Watson is a cognitive computer, which basically means that it can learn. So what IBM does is they they feed it a bunch of information, and then it takes that information, and it it can start to make calculations on its own and give back calculations of all different kinds. They have Watson learning and working and calculating in weather and medical uses and science. So they decided to teach Watson to cook. And in order to do that, they worked with the Institute for Culinary Education because they know how to cook and also with Bon Appetit magazine. And they pumped all this information into Watson. And then Watson started cooking and you can give Watson a couple, of reci- a couple of ingredients, and it will give you a recipe. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about Watson, and I think, you know, is, has a translation to this book in that the organization of the book is not very traditional. Watson doesn't have any preconceived social ideas or habits about what we're supposed to eat at certain times of the day or what we're supposed to combine in terms of ingredients and flavors. You know, I take the example of breakfast. Sometimes Watson would kick out these crazy breakfast recipes 
you know, certainly in Bushwick, Brooklyn, we don't really eat fish or rice for breakfast, but in certain parts of the world they do. And when we think about cooking and pairing flavors, we're bringing a lot of emotional, cultural, intellectual norms to bear before we even get to that. But this book, Flavor Matrix, kind of throws that out the window a little bit because you're cooking on a molecular ingredient level. You know, it was the thing that really kind of struck me the most in, in working with Watson. And when we started that project was learning to shed all of those preconceived notions of what's supposed to go together. And, you know, I mean, we all have to have a point of reference. So I think for, for every chef and especially young chefs, you know, you really are just so tied to what you've seen before and previous experience. And, you know, you get into a little bit of experimentation and, and trying things out here and there, but that's, it's a really inefficient model for for finding, you know, for discovering flavor combinations. And, you know, for me as a young cook, I just, you know, I was thinking about it, making a dish with oysters. I pull every cookbook I had off of the shelf, go to the index. Does he have an oyster recipe? Okay, boom, put it on this pile. Get, line up all, you know, and then start going through and looking at every oyster recipe, uh, you know, of these chefs that I really loved and respected. And... We try to get a sense of, you know, what makes a good oyster dish from, you know, from looking at all of these different recipes, you know, piling through these cookbooks. Um, but, you know, working with Watson, we learned to to just shed all of that. And, you know, when we saw a tomato, uh, you know, come up in an ingredient list, it wasn't basil and, it wasn't basil and cheese and balsamic vinegar right away it was okay tomato and then what setting are we going to put it into and what are what are the best matches it's now cardamom and vanilla um you know rather than rather than basil and cheese it's fascinating how much we are influenced by our experience without even really being aware of it i think in so many ways um, your example of, of, you know, tomato with the basil and cheese because we're in the pizza restaurant is, you know, spot on. And how many people have seen that as a dish? Um, tomato is a fruit. And sometimes you have it, you know, paired with strawberries or, you know, watermelon and different flavors like that that pull, you know, that, you know, that work on the sweetness and the acidity. So I don't know, tomato and watermelon might be weird, but maybe not someplace else and certainly not to a computer who isn't worried about that. Yeah. And who doesn't know, you know, what a, what a tomato is supposed to go with. And I think, you know, when, when you look at it and, and, you know, there are recipes in the flavor matrix, but it's, it's, you know, not meant to be a recipe book. It's, it's a book for inspiration and ideas about cooking. And, you know, so we're just looking at ingredients and saying, okay, to, let's talk about tomatoes. What's the flavor of a tomato? And, you know, we, we kind of set, you know, mapped out that of the general, flavor of a tomato over kind of the classic aroma wheel that you would use when you were, you know, doing critical tasting of wine or coffee or beer. There's, you know, all of these complex aromas present in all of those beverages and they're all present in food as well. But we've never really kind of gotten into the conversation about how those aromas work to create flavor in food. And, and so that's what we're doing. So, you know, now we can look at it and say, yeah, oh, right. Of course. Yes, we all know it's a fruit because there's that always that one person in the crowd who loves to correct and be like, oh, right. it's not a vegetable, actually. <laughs> Tomatoes, fruit, you know. Yes, we know it's a fruit. Um, but, you know, and what that means, though. So, okay, yeah, it's a fruit. It's, you know, it's closely, you know, it's in the fruit family. It's related. And it has all these aromas that are that are very fruity. And, you know, a lot of times the, you know, the flavor, I, I like to say that a, you know, a strawberry is just a tomato with perfume. 
Uh, and, and that's really kind of the difference. You have these beautiful, you know, floral notes that kind of craft that craft this thing into a strawberry, and then you have these, you know, savory notes that craft this thing into into a tomato. But if you kind of shave off some of those edges, they're kind of the same thing, structure-wise. Right. And it comes down to just really like the, the sugar and acid balance within them. And I can manipulate that myself. I can add a little sugar to it. I can add a little vinegar to it and take it away and start crafting, you know, different, you know, when I, when I think about flavor that way, I can start crafting new things out of these ingredients. So this sounds very scientific for someone who did not like science in school. <laughs> Have you discovered a love for science through this project? Have you, did you at one point, I mean, there must have been a reason why you went into, you know, chemistry in college. Did you love science at one point and then fell out of love with it? This is a very, this is a very academic, geeky, laboratory book presented in a way that I think everyone with varying cooking, you know, interests and levels can certainly enjoy. But are you fully in the, in the science camp now? I, you know, I am. I am. And again, it's, you know, now that I've kind of discovered that application of it and, and a way to, to use it that's not, you know, that's not abstract that I, you know, I can, you know, see results from. I, I often, you know, I, I like to kind of tell people, for me, I'm also a big sports guy. Uh, you know, now, now in sports analysis, it's all about analytics. And, and I like to say that this is kind of the analytics of cooking. Well, the, also in sports, the analytics of nutrition is, yeah. a, is a big, big storyline now also. Um, did you have to restrain the scientist part a little bit in this book <laughs> to sort of make a, a broad appeal yes. with the subject matter? Do you envision a smaller pamphlet or compendium maybe down the line that just has infographics and no glossy photos, which is going further into the, the real deep science of this? Well, so my, you know, my editor, my editor was, is fantastic. Um, shout out to Alex Littlefield. And, um, and then my wife, my writing partner, and this was the one who really took the geeky science edges off of it because I would, you know, we'd either be discussing or I would have, you know, written out a section and she would read it and she goes, I don't understand that. She's like, no one's going to understand that. And if people start out a book with that information, they're not, they're never going to read it. And so she would, you know, help me to kind of really help in, in recrafting. She's a phenomenal writer. Um, so she really kind of, you know, took those hard edges off of it. But we also really tried to kind of tuck the science in at the edges. In, it's a in very the, good balance. In the front and the back of the book. So if you want to get, you know, really nerdy and deep on this, you can go to the back of the book and you can look up, uh, one, any of the any of the ingredient categories, you can look up the berries, and you can see for blueberries and strawberries and blackberries and all of the berries, the three most important chemicals that make up their flavor. So you can actually say, okay, so you know the blueberry flavor is constructed by these three compounds, and these three compounds have these aromas, meaning that those are kind of the most prominent flavors in a blueberry. And so now I want to start crafting something, a new dish that has blueberries in it. These are the flavors I should focus on because they're going to be the best match and they're going to make for the most interesting bite. One of the interesting things about the science and where it comes from, I do think we are at really a watershed moment in the food world in terms of all of the information that's available and the different camps that are really aggressively pursuing information about food and where it comes from. A lot of this flavor food science comes from the Watson Project, which is IBM, which is 
giant computing company on a global scale. A lot of the science, this flavor science and mouthfeel and, you know, what makes your dopamine receptors in your brain go, give me more of that, comes from food industry, the packaged good companies, the CPG companies that are trying to develop the Dorito that's going to make you addicted to Doritos because it's the perfect molecular construction of everything your mouth and brain and body wants. And those are sort of two very different camps. I think also right now today what we have is um, sort of like functional food for the body and the environment. Companies like Impossible Foods that are creating the Impossible Burger looking for ways to, in a laboratory, construct something like a burger. And in order to do that, they need to deconstruct elementally how we perceive what a burger is, including the flavor and the taste and all that. So this book kind of comes at a moment when all those things are happening because we're interested in figuring out what exactly our food is on a different level. Do you see yourself creating a curriculum with things like this or publishing another edition or publishing the textbook version or continuing your own research? You know, I, I hope so, because, you know, all of those things are going on and a lot of them have been going on for for a long time. And, you know, for some reason, like we chefs have been left out of the conversation for so long. Um, with, that, with very few exception, there's a, right. a handful of people. Yes, exactly. But you know, it kind of you know, generally, uh, you know, I mean, flavor scientists, you know, some some of these you know research papers that I, that I'd be studying to to create the flavor matrix, going back to the 50s and 60s, and, and this is you know science that has been around for so long, and, and you know people have have been aware of it. Um, but I think, you know, ever, probably ever since early 2000 and Ferran Adria, you know, well, shut you down have... and went into a lab for, for six months of the year. Um, you know, we started getting a lot more interested in like, okay, well, we need to understand what's happening here. We can get a lot better if we do that. And so, you know, yeah, this is that point. And, and I think, um, there is a lot to learn here. You know, uh, I would, I would love to see flavor matrix become, you know, a, a part of a text for, for young chefs as you start to learn you know, how to, how to build flavor. In France, you know, you have someone like Hervé Tisse, who's one of the fathers of molecular gastronomy, and all his books are really textbooks. And you have, you know, sous vide coming out of France also, which I think people incorrectly perceive sous vide as boil in the bag cooking, where because it's in a, it's vacuum packed in a plastic bag, you just throw it into water. Um, when it's actually, the specific study of at what temperature molecules transform from one state to the next and holding product at the temperature either just above or just yeah. below that point. It's extremely scientific. But maybe those things aren't perceived as sexy when we think about eating in a restaurant or maybe we don't think about how that translates into a delicious pizza the scientists don't get into the restaurants, the chefs don't get into the labs. How do we create a more uh, collaborative environment, you think, between science and chefs? No, that, you know, that's, that's exactly it. Like, we just need to keep having, we need to, we need to continue talking to one another because um, the scientists typically aren't very good cooks. And, you know, chefs typically aren't very good scientists, with, again, with exceptions, but, you know, in general. Chefs are not great scientists. So, you know... There's a lot of, I have the feel for it. Right, right. I have the instinct for it. I know um, when it's done. I can smell it. I can touch it. I can taste it. That's right. 
Yes, right, and and that's you know for the way I mean that's the way we we all learned you know the we all chefs wise that's you know that's the way we learned we, I I learned just yeah I feel it I'm even ta- in I'm home cooking on you learn right standing now. next to somebody who cooks and they show you just kind of what to do and what it should look like and yeah. have it be instinctual so there's you know there's some some people who who you know who think I've I've been we've been teaching sous vide at at ICE for almost seven years now. Uh, you know, there's some people who think that, you know, that takes some of the, the sous vide, takes some of the soul out of it because you're not, you know, constantly touching and prodding at the food uh, to, to, you know, get that feel for it. Um, but the level of precision, you know, that, that it gives you. And, and I think, you know, this is so much of, you know, we often think of technology just as in, you know, I, the sous vide, I think, is, a, is a, that great example of, of cooking technology because it is a gadget. It's hardware. It's a yeah, gadget. It a looks gadget. like a lab project. But it's you know, technology is, is just information and and better access to information in whatever form that may come in. And yes, often it comes you know in some electronic vessel. Um, but you know, under again, and I think you know, I'm going to make my bold prediction here. Um, sous vide may be already on the way out. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Because on the way out, in what sense? Um, because it's a great entree for everyone to kind of start to understand low temperature cooking. Um, but the technology is moving so fast now that we're going to have a lot of ability to do low temperature cooking with no water baths and no bags required. Hmm. Low temp precision ovens are going to be everywhere. So the sous vide technology is going to be replaced by a different technology to do the same style of cooking. Yep. Even though all of the, although, you know, you are in New York City, which is an early adapter town, and you are in the high end of the early adapter food world between Chef Watson and ICE, plus you're head of research, so that implies yeah, ahead I, of the curve. I mean, I, I have, I mean, my, it, my room little, is the culinary lab. So. It, it'll take a little while for the rest of the country to, I think, catch up to sous vide. I mean, right now you can buy little sous vide machines on Amazon for, you know, under a hundred dollars. Yeah, it's amazing. So does it need to become, does sous vide need to become as prevalent as a microwave before this next generation becomes prevalent? I, um, because there was a while when the microwave first came out where it was yeah. like, what's that weird thing? No, I mean, I think so. And I, and I think, you know, I mean, I see it just happening. I mean, I, you know, because of that, that bar for getting into the game now is so low on sous vide. I mean, when we first started teaching sous vide at ICE, you, you were still seven, $800 to get into the sous vide game just to buy, you know, the one polyscience circulator, the only one that was on the market. And now, you know, like you said, under a hundred bucks, you can have one, you know, at your doorstep in 24 hours and be you know, cooking sous vide the next day. Um, so yeah, but I think, no, I think you're right that, you know, there, there will be kind of a, a continued spread and, and, um, acceptance of, of sous vide. Um, and then, you know, cause I mean, it's, you know, gospel people once people get into it and they make that first steak or that first chicken breast like they are telling all of their friends about how it's great so that steak easy. was and how easy right and how easy it was and that's the beauty so now like yeah i've got my steak cooking over there i don't need to think about it i can focus on making this beautiful gratin or i can you know make this craft this really amazing sauce and i can focus my time on that i don't have to you know use my mental space on on worrying about that steak um but yeah, I think this. I think precision temp ovens. Um, they're coming. And I, there's a few companies that have some really intriguing models in the works right now um, that are going to be around. That are that are going to okay. come out soon. You heard it here first. Precision temperature cooking ovens. 
soon to supplant the dominance of sous vide. Um, but, you know, I could see sous vide ultimately having a larger problem, which is the plastic bag. Yeah. Which, you know, as, as time goes by, plastic becomes more and more a tough negotiation point for anything. So we'll see how that goes. And it's expensive. Yes. You know, and it's, and it's messy and it's a lot to deal with. And it's just, and yes, and like every time... You know, you, you start to think about it. You're like, oh, gosh, every time I'm going to cook a steak, I need another, pla- you know, I need another, pla- it's another exactly. plastic bag. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's another reason I think the oven is going to have, you know, some some big appeal because I can just slide that steak in on a tray. Maybe that's the next book. Yeah. Maybe. We, we are out of time. I'm always surprised when we're out of time because we have so much more left to talk about. And I was having a wonderful conversation. I want to thank our guest today, James Brissione, who is the author of The Flavor Matrix with Brooke Parkhurst, just out this week, $30, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find it on Amazon and in your local brick-and-mortar bookstore. At the end of each show, I like to talk about events in real life where you can go out and meet some people and eat some wonderful food. Coming up on Saturday, March 24th, is Sumo Stew, which is the project of two Heritage Radio Network hosts, Michael Harlan Turkel and Harry Rosenblum. It is watching sumo wrestling live from Japan and eating amazing bento box, drinking Japanese beer and sake. I don't know how you could resist. It's $65 a person. You can go to sumostew.com to get your tickets. Also, another event coming up in March. On March 21st, Ladies Night by Heritage Radio Network host Aaron Fairbanks. It is a collaborative monthly event for women, for anyone who identifies as female and a woman. This event is hosted by Saxelby Cheese and Saxelby. It will be at the Chelsea Market. You can go to BeKindBeFierce.com for tickets. That one is free, but you need to register. If you like the show, come back and see us next week on Thursday at 11 a.m. If you really love the show... Go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Subscribe and leave us an amazing four-star review. If you can't live without it, go to heritageradionetwork.org. Click on the beating heart and make a donation. Maybe give us what you spent on pizza this week. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. This is Tech Bites. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.